0: We are going to turn now to our time in God's Word this morning in the book of Romans. So you can be finding your way to Romans chapter 8. We're going to continue in the series through this chapter. And I know we've been here for a long time. And I make no apologies about that because uh, it is such an important chapter in the book of Romans. And Romans is such an important book in the New Testament. And so I really think that it's important for us to, to take our time and go through this and to really understand what's in here. Because there is not only a significant amount of work that needs to be done on our part, even as believers, even those indwelt with the Holy Spirit, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, to truly grasp and understand and do the hard work of knowing the word. But there's also, I believe, on account of how significant this chapter is, a particular assault upon it by the evil one to make you not care or not understand. So 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 in that respect I believe that this is contested ground. This is where the fighting is fierce. This is where we need to be equipped and armed and protected. Remember, the spiritual armor, the armor of God that one wears, is an armor of defensive nature. It is against the attacks of the evil one, against his flaming darts, as the translation says, better translated, javelins. It is that sort of combat that you enter into, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, when you are on a contested piece of ground like this. It's not neutral territory, it's not a museum where we have the luxury of meandering around from exhibit to exhibit and just sort of contemplating the artifacts. No, this is a war zone. This is, this is house-to-house combat in terms of making sure that we don't get it wrong. And I feel the weight of that even as I prepare each week in the book of Romans because I find myself you know, going from you know, paragraphs to verses to one verse at a time. And I'm just doing this because I really see so much that needs to be instructed so much that needs to be corrected and you may recall that when paul talks about the particular role of the pastor the particular role of the pastor is twofold it it is one to to teach and to exhort and to reprove and rebuke and encourage but it is also to defend the primary role of a pastor as, as one man said is not to pet sheep but to protect them from wolves it is the shepherd's duty to go out of his way and at times to chase off wolves that the sheep have mistaken for sheep. There, there is a very real spiritual battle going on and it will rage until the day when the resurrection releases us from these bodies of death. And, and so it's with a degree of, of, of seriousness and gravity that we come to the text. Not, not to be Not to be Eeyore type people, not to be discouraging people, not not to be people that always have this sort of morose kind of attitude towards life and everything is bad and everything is hard. I don't think that's an indication of a spirit-filled believer who's supposed to be filled with joy. But the joy that you have is a joy that is reasonable enough to know that it's in the face of a battle so it can't be just silly kind of joy empty, frivolous kind of joy, careless joy, wandering around in the battle without your armor on. No wonder so many Christians are slain by the wiles of the devil, not to the point of losing their salvation, they're secure in the hands of God, but certainly to the point of being rendered absolutely ineffective in the kingdom. Beloved, let us not be among those so counted. By studying the word and by knowing it and by committing to it and by restricting our attention to it and our knowledge of it, There is built into that a protection from feeling the need to graze in all these foreign pastures simply for the sake of knowing how the grass tastes. I can't tell you how many people repeatedly inform me of things that I don't know because I don't care. I'm not in that field grazing. I don't care what that person is doing in their church or what that theologian has said or how that person has corrupted the gospel. I'm aware, I care if you're led astray by it, but I myself cannot... Go and learn all of these things in order to be up to speed on it all. Believe me, I've got more than I need right here in contending for the truth. Amen? So please forgive your pastors for not being as knowledgeable about error as you may wish them to be. But praise God for your pastors if they know the truth. All right? I guess that was my introduction. Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, verse 29. I'm going to read all the way through 30 to get the context, but 29 will be our verse of consideration this morning. This is the word of the Lord. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. We're going to take two weeks to cover these two verses, really the continuation of the broader argument that began back in verse 26 of Romans 8, and we'll continue all the way through to Romans 8, verse 39. This this is the story of redemption. It is the story of redemption. The the ever-unfolding narrative of God's plan that was formed before the foundation of the world to rescue lost humanity from their sin by sending a savior, a mediator, that he might adopt them as children of God and therefore Elevate them to the place of co-recipients of the inheritance set aside for his only begotten son to enjoy the glory of the new heavens and the new earth and a new body forever. Here we see that there are really two aspects of redemption and we'll cover them over two weeks. Two elements of redemption and two implications. Let me give them to you. If you're a note taker, jot this down or just listen carefully. Two main points, two verses. Number one, we're going to see the purpose of redemption. That's in verse 29. The purpose of redemption in verse 29. The implication is going to be the doctrine of adoption. We're going to do a little mini seminary class today in the sermon. Apologize in advance for those of you who came here looking for something a little light. But we're going to have to go into that to understand it because it is critical to understand the rest of the book of Romans. So point number one, we're going to look at the purpose of redemption in verse 29 and the implications of that being adoption. And then number two, next week, the process of redemption. In verse 30, the process of redemption and the doctrine of election. We're going to study the doctrine of election. So this week, the purpose of redemption, specifically adoption, and next week, the process of redemption, specifically adoption election. Now, this is a glorious doctrine. I will tell you in advance, the doctrine of adoption is a glorious doctrine. It it is seen represented even in a shadow form here on earth in the wonderful mercy of human adoption, in the loving nature of human adoption, the sacrificial human adoption, but take that to an infinite and eternal degree, and you have what God did for us in Christ when he not only rescued sinners, but adopted them. Oh, how merciful it would have been had he simply disarmed us and not judged us for high treason and executed us and punished us for eternity. How gracious of him it would have been had he merely issued a pardon That alone would have been far above anything that we deserved, far beyond anything we could comprehend. That alone would have been a gospel worthy of all of the singing that we did this morning. But, beloved, he takes it beyond that. It is not merely a redemption that says, you are no longer my enemy. I choose not to destroy you. But a gospel that says, my son came so that he could live the life you could never live, to take on the sin you could never pay for. So you would be clothed in his righteousness and receive from me all of the rewards and the inheritance and the glory that is due his name because you're found in him. That that is something beyond our comprehension. And, And if that's not astonishing to you, if that doesn't stir your heart this morning, let me appeal to you to ask the Holy Spirit to awaken it, to quicken it. And ask the question, perhaps there isn't really a spirit of God inside of you. And this might be the day when you finally lay down your arms and whatever you're doing to try to save yourself and you embrace that truth in faith, believing it as the only thing necessary for redemption. There is no work involved. It's all of grace. Grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone is later in the scriptures alone. Amen? Souls of the Reformation. Five out of the ten points of what really make us who we are in terms of our understanding of the gospel. The rest of those will unpack next week. But here, I need you to see in sort of vivid detail what the Apostle Paul wants you to know about the very purpose of your redemption. Remember, if you don't grasp this now, you won't be prepared when the enemy comes and tries to snatch it away from you if it's held loosely in your hand, Satan, the master spiritual pickpocket, will simply, when you are not looking, snatch it away. And the moment when you need it to hold on to it, it will be gone and you will fall. Understand it. Grasp it. Protect it. Remember it. I had a disturbing conversation this week with a fellow pastor who I was meeting with in the Midwest, and he explained to me the Grief that he was experiencing over the fact that his in-laws were attending a church not far from here that has veered much of the way off course from a true understanding of the gospel. And he said, I don't understand why they are still there. They know something's wrong, but they don't know how to articulate what's wrong. And I said, I can tell you why, because the pastor who was there before didn't make the effort to instruct the church so that they knew when false teaching arrived. It's wonderful to preach about love. It's wonderful to preach about grace. It's wonderful to preach about all these ways in which to make your life better while you're here. But you know what? At the end of the day, if you're not teaching people the truth of God's word and good sound doctrine and good solid meat, then when the difficult times come, they're not going to be strong enough to know what is true and they're going to find themselves tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Remember that verse? And so I believe that it's pastoral malpractice to not take the opportunity when a verse like this presents itself to dig deep into the theology of it and to tattoo it on your arm so that you never forget it. You don't have to tattoo it on your arm. Just thought of that, but if you want, I won't complain. Now, let's... Let me begin this morning simply by giving you an exposition of this simple verse exposition of Romans chapter 8 verse 29 this is the purpose of redemption he begins by saying this for those whom he the, the he there is God it is God who is being the actor in this drama it is God who is at work what's the four there for therefore remember we said this is an ongoing argument Paul is essentially standing up in front of the Supreme Court of the universe, giving his appeal for a right understanding of the gospel. And as he makes his case, as he appeals this truth, he will say over and over again, for, 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 and, and, and. And he's layering on argument after argument solidifying for the person who is yet unconvinced exactly what it is that God did for him on the cross through Jesus Christ. And so all we're doing is, is channeling that argument when we preach a book like Romans. I, I don't need to add any flourish. I don't need to spend a lot of time consulting commentaries. The argument is right there. It's as clear as the nose on your face. It's not about understanding it. It's about believing it. And so, so allow me to just sort of pull ourselves down and put our nose in the text to make sure we understand what this is saying. The actor here is God himself. The reason he is saying the for in verse 29 is to connect with verse 28, which said that all things are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You say, how? Well, this is an example of how. This is the continuation. Based on what we covered last week, our understanding of that, he can now say, for, to further validate my claim, notice that those, the ones who love God and are called according to his purpose, those believers are the ones whom God foreknew. Literally means new before. New before. This is used of believers here in verse 29 of chapter 8. It is used later in Romans of Israel chapter 11 verse 2 just jot that down we'll get there eventually in one of these years Romans 11 chapter 2 and it is also used interestingly enough of Jesus Christ himself in 1st Peter chapter 1 verse 20 what is Paul saying Paul's saying that you are foreknown you are known before before you were born before the foundation of the world He knew you. He didn't have to fast forward the tape of history to figure out what you would be like. He knew who you were, created you, ordained every day of your life, knew it from beginning to end, start to finish, first to last. There is nothing hidden from him, nothing unknown. You're known. You're known in a way that you don't know yourself and that no one else knows you. Consider that. You're known in a way that no one else knows you and you don't know yourself. No one knows what's going to happen to you next. No one knows how it's going to end. No one knows what your last day is going to be like. And you know what? Neither do you. You don't even know yourself as well as God knows you. And so he says here that you've been foreknown before any of this was set in motion. He knew exactly who you were going to be, what you were going to be, how you would turn out. You know, I delight in looking at the redemptive story of individuals played up before my eyes as I stand here preaching to you. Because one of the things that I think God gives pastors is like multiple tracks that play in their mind. Because on the one hand, they're preaching. Uh, they're also trying to think about what comes next in their sermon. They're also taking attendance, which I'm doing right now. Well done, most of you. They're also, they're also seeing people and they're thinking about what those people are going through. They're ready to pray for them, to pray for their children, to thank God that they're back from their trip to Hawaii. They're thinking about, oh, it's nice to see you. I haven't seen you in a long time. I wasn't pointing at anyone in particular when I did that. There's all these things going on. Listen, I love looking out and being reminded of the redemptive story in some of your lives because I know what the Lord rescued you from. And as you share it with me, I just see it's a portrait of grace. Believe me, there wasn't a single second of your life leading up to your redemption, and there hasn't been since, that God did not foreknow already and ordain. And it is all working out for his glory and for your good. Do you believe that? I hope you do. I hope you do. I hope it makes you patient with the people who are not living up to your expectations. I hope it makes you free from shame and guilt in your own life, and pleading Romans 8, 1 all the time, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that's when you're supposed to say amen. Let's try it. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. I need to know you affirm what I'm saying because it's true. Own it. Now, those whom he foreknew, also, the text says in the original, also, we're connecting these, so it's a this and he predestined. What does predestined mean? By the way, it's predestined, not predestinated, as some people say it. It's predestined. He predestined us. It means predetermined. It means set up ahead of time. It means know before it happens. Organize it, build it, wind it up, watch it go. It's there. It's understood. It is not something robotic in the sense that every single person is told ahead of time what they are to do, but there is a certain way in which everything in God's plan, according to his predestined arrangement, works exactly according to the way that he ordained it. And you might say to me, well, explain to me how you can sort of believe both of those things. How can you believe that there's a certain amount of responsibility in in mankind in the decisions that we make as evidence in Scripture, and, and yet there is this foreordained, foreknown, predestined life that God sees set on a track that he predestined before the foundation of the world. And the answer is, I don't know exactly how that works but I believe it I believe those things and I can hold them in tension I think that the more we dig into it the more we realize that even God in his omniscience and in his perfect ability to 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 plan the life of every individual they are working together perfectly for his good and or our good and his glory ultimately and so in that no matter how much we struggle with understanding the secret things that belong to God, we can at least rejoice in them, knowing that they come from the hand of one who is infinitely good and infinitely righteous. He predestined. But he predestined us for something. So he foreknew us from the foundation of the world. He has predestined us, set us, as it were, on a course for something, namely, to be, literally, what the translation should say, to be conformed. To be conformed. You all know Romans 12.1, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the conforming, uh, literally the, the, I believe it's two Greek words, um, soon and morphe, to, to, to be morphed into, to be shaped into something. He has, he has determined that we would be conformed. Conformed to what? Here, the image of his son. Now, the only other place that this is used of believers is in Philippians 3.21, Get a good verse to jot down, Philippians 3.21, where we are told, very same word, we will be conformed into the likeness of his physical body. Now, what Alan read to you earlier from 1 Corinthians 15 is a parallel text promising that our bodies in the new heavens and the new earth will be fashioned, will be conformed into a unique human body identical in construction, as it were, with the body of the risen Christ. It'll be conformed to a body like his. Likewise, on a spiritual level, Paul says that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined as believers to be conformed spiritually to be like Christ. Conformed to the image of his Son, It doesn't mean you're going to be conformed into his son. It means you're going to be conformed into the image of his son, the likeness of his son. A word that means to make a mark or an imprint. It would be as if you were to take a seal and you were to press it hard into wax and you would leave the imprint on the wax. It is that kind of image, impression, mark. You're going to be like Christ physically and spiritually. This is an astonishing promise. If you don't believe all things are working together for good, then you don't believe this verse. Because somehow, in a peculiar way, all of your trials, the momentary light afflictions, as Paul refers to them, are working out for you a particular weight of glory. And when you encounter a trial, when you encounter something that is sort of beyond your comprehension, you don't know why it's happening to you, may I encourage you and you encourage me to to, to look at that and embrace it and accept it for what it is and to say, I don't know how yet, but this is working out for my eternal glory. If you can start there, it will help to reorganize the way you view the circumstances of your life as difficult as they are. I'm not going to say it's going to make it easier, but you're going to be think more clearly so that you understand what it is that God intends for you to hold on to and anchor your hope to. Not that things will get better, but that they will work out for good. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference between telling yourself things will get better. And, and, And again, I hate to be the person who, you know, discourages you this morning, if that's what you're holding on to, but I've been around long enough to witness the fact that things don't always get better. Sometimes they don't get better. Sometimes they get worse. Imagine if Paul's whole thought when he was in prison in Rome was things are going to get better and he holds onto that right until the sword comes down and severs his head from his body. Things are going to get better. I just, I know they will. Things are going to get better. No, they're not going to necessarily get better from a human perspective, but they will work out for good. And he can say it was good. Ultimately good. Even if my situation got horrendously bad. Now, now, now let's explain why. So we've talked about this sort of from a standpoint of what God has, has done. He's conforming us into the image of his son. Well, what's the end result? What's the goal? Look down at your text. It says for, and this is the Greek conjunction ace. It's, it's not the same as the Greek word that would normally be translated in order that. It's one of my favorite little conjunctions because I always know where my application for the sermon is going to come from. Uh, in my English translation, it says, in order that, but, but really, this is a slightly different perspective. This is more the culmination. It's like, this is how it all cashes out. and This is what it's all leading to. Why was I foreknown? Why was I predestined to be conformed to the image of his son? For this reason, look down at what it says. The end result is that him, Christ, the antecedent of him is the son in whose image you will be conformed. So the him is Christ, that Christ would obtain something. Just stop for a minute and consider that. Christ would obtain something. Your predestination oh, leads to incalculable benefits for you. But Paul is taking this to another level when he says not only for you, but also for him. What does he get? What What does Christ get for his sacrifice? At the risk of propping up sinful humanity to a degree they ought not to be propped up. I will say this and then qualify it. He gets you. He gets you. Now that doesn't mean you are so precious and so special and so wonderful that God thought you were so worth saving that he would send his only son to come and save you. That is bizarre, ungodly, unbiblical thinking and it fills modern so-called worship songs. What this shows is that God loved Christ so much that he was willing to rescue lost humanity by sending Christ with the promise that upon redemption, he would receive in them a bride and siblings to enjoy the glory of the heavenly inheritance forever. He now, as a result of redemption, has gathered together to himself those who have been conformed into his image, as predestined by the Father, who foreknew them before the foundation of the world, so that Christ would be—note the verse—the firstborn among many. I'll cover the last word in a moment. The firstborn among many. What does it mean to be the firstborn? Sure, you might say, "Well, it's pretty easy. Just..." Take the word apart and you've got the answer. No, it's more than just born first. Firstborn is the firstborn in the Jewish understanding of how children were treated in a family. The firstborn, the firstborn son was the one who was given a double inheritance. Remember, a double portion of the inheritance because it was his responsibility for looking after the parents and the rest of the family. So Jesus Christ himself being that firstborn, the lead son, as it were, in a family of siblings in a family of children he is going to be your brother he is your king he is your lord he is your husband but he's also your brother and in this regard we are entered into the very family of god adopted clothed in the righteousness of that perfect firstborn son friday night as we were up on the stage looking at all these graduates coming in I made a comment that seeing them robed like that was an indication of what they've achieved. They go across the stage in a long, dark robe. This isn't something you wear normally. This isn't something you just wear to go out for lunch. I mean, this is special. In fact, most people wear it one time, right? One time. So it indicates something. And there's another little part that goes around and as a guy who hasn't done a lot of education in the higher levels, I can't even know what that thing's called, but you know, it's like a, oh, a hood, I think it's called. You got a hood, you got a robe, you got cords hanging down, you've got a hat, you got a tassel, I mean, you're you're dressed in such a way that people are supposed to notice you. You stand out from the rest of the crowd. If there's a gathering of people and one of the graduates, you know who the graduate is because the others don't look like that. They're robed in something that indicates what they have accomplished. And and I just thought as, as I was watching them come in and I was praying for them at the beginning, praise be to God that many of these... Far more than being clothed in the robes that indicate what they have achieved are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which is something only he could achieve. That's the gospel in graduation. When you see this, you see an indication of what human beings have achieved, but remind yourself that in the last day, when you stand before the great throne of God in the assembly of the believers, he says you're clothed in white, white robes, symbolic of the holiness that was... Draped upon you, not a holiness you've achieved because of all the good works you did after you got saved, but because of what Christ did and what he did for you, clothing you in his righteousness. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and we're just going to briefly see a parallel passage that I think explains it to us, even more clearly perhaps. Colossians chapter 1, you're very familiar with it, I'm sure. Beginning in verse 15, Same terminology here that Paul uses to describe what it is that we have in Christ. And then describing Christ himself. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's what it means for him to be the firstborn among many brethren. It means that we are going to share with Christ the glory of the inheritance, that all of the things that are promised to him, the infinite, inexhaustible, incomprehensible riches stored up as treasure in heaven by the God who owns everything, will be shared among not only his only begotten son, but also all the adopted sons that are welcomed into his presence through the sacrifice of the firstborn. It's a glorious reality. Now, let's be clear on who exactly we're talking about here. It says brothers. Brothers. That's the proper word in the original, by the way. Brothers. It should not say sons. It should not say children. And it certainly should not say sons and daughters. I'm explain to you very briefly why. The Bible was written in a particular language. That language was Greek. Greek is very particular. The Greek writers meant what they said and said what they meant, and they had a word for it. And the word here is brothers, where we get Adelphoi from, or Philadelphia, the city. It is brethren. It should be translated brethren. It is not sons. Sons has a very different meaning. It is not children, techna, which is used in other places in Romans, which has a very particular meaning. And it is certainly, above all, not sons and daughters, which appears to be, in the efforts of some translations, a way to make women feel like they are inclusive in this. Ironically, when God uses the word sons to describe the relationship that he has with his children, that elevates both men and women to the point of sons being those firstborn sons, the most important sons. It's not about your gender, it's about your place. So sons is a very important word. Children is a very important word. Brothers is a very important word. The word here is brothers. Let's not do violence to the text by making it say something that it does not say. That came off a little harsher than I wanted to say it, but but it bothers me. And listen, I'm an equal um, attacker when it comes to translations, you know that, right? It's not just other translations I go after. I go after my own too, if it's bad, or the one I tend to use which is why you can make up your own as you go along as long as it's right this should say brothers why because because the focus here is on the family unit the brethren the brethren in fact the very concept here of being adopted as sons or conformed into his image, all of these notions of of coming together aren't even just naturally masculine terms. Some are feminine terms. It's talking about men and women together being adopted as brethren. The family. Part of the eternal family. So be encouraged today. There is no designation. There is no Male or female, it is merely those who are the siblings of the risen Christ. That is where we have our hope. And so we go back to this text and we are reminded that for those whom he foreknew from before the foundation of the world, he predestined to be conformed, shaped into the image of his son spiritually. In order that he might be the firstborn, the oldest son among his many brothers, brethren, both men and women. Now this leads us to an understanding of the doctrine of adoption. So for the remainder of our time today, I am going to ask you to just focus your attention in on on what I'm going to say. And it will be only a few minutes, but I want to take you through a simple understanding of the doctrine of adoption the doctrine of adoption. Next week, we'll look at the doctrine of election. But for this week, I want you to understand that the word adoption is here a technical term. It is a legal term to describe what it meant to be legally adopted. We are not merely guests. We we are not those who are squatters on the property of God's heavenly abode. We we are not even foster children, as it were. We are adopted in as full participants in the family. It's a legal term used for adoption. I love the way that it's described in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. Article 12 says this of adoption. It says, all those that are justified, God, God vouchsafed, which is a great old English word that means protected, secured, purchased. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed In and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. That's a long run-on sentence, but a beautiful one, isn't it? It's a definition of what it means to be adopted. That's why these confessions took so long to make and have lasted so long and why it is such a shame why modern pastors with barely a seminary education come to a church planted in some strip mall somewhere, hang out a shingle and say, I've got my own doctrinal statement. I wrote it last week. These have stood the test of time. These are confessions that ought to be known and read by us, which is why I so often bring them to you as a way of understanding what these terms mean. But I'm not as impressed with this statement as I am with what the Bible teaches. So let's do a very brief study of what this means biblically. Beginning in Romans chapter 8, since you're already there, back up a little bit to verse 15. And we're just going to go through the book of Romans, three verses, and then Galatians and Ephesians, okay? So give you some idea of where we're headed. Won't be that long. These are great to jot down, study them maybe on your own. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This adoption as sons is one word in the original. It's that legal term. Adoption. Look over at chapter verse 23 we covered this not too long ago verse 23 of chapter 8 and not only the creation talking about the groanings but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the again adoption as sons and what is it this time the redemption of our bodies remember how we said conforming to the image of God is conforming you spiritually and conforming you physically Well, adopting you is adopting you spiritually and adopting you physically because you're going to get not only a new creation on the inside, but a new creation on the outside. And that's one of the things you're waiting for. Moving on in the book of Romans, look at chapter 9, verse 4. Talking here about the sovereignty of God in election. Chapter 9, verse 4 extends it now beyond just believers but to the israelites as well he says they are israelites and to them belong the adoption the choice of them among all of the other nations he says i chose you not because you were great in number i chose you because i chose to chose you he says i will have mercy on whom i have mercy you didn't earn it believe me he says you didn't rise up among the other nations as some top pick first round draft pick nation for me in fact you're at the bottom and i chose you anyway he says the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises two more texts galatians chapter four keep turning to the right galatians chapter four Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read down through verse 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those... Who are under the law? (laughs) Does the law save you? No, it couldn't save you. You have to be redeemed out from under the law. So that, purpose, we might receive, again, adoption as sons. Same term. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Everything Paul says in Romans 8. One more text, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's begin verse 3. We'll take it down through verse... Well, you know what? You can go chapter 1, 3 all the way through verse 14. All of it would be relevant. Let me just read 3 through 6 for the sake of time. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoption through Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, capital B, Beloved, Christ himself. Beloved, this is the doctrine of adoption. We are set apart for the foundation of the world to be among those chosen by God, not just to be redeemed, but to be made sons, to be made brethren. What are the implications? Let me give you three, as we close? Three implications, And, and I'm just gonna frame this up in terms of past, present, and future. First of all, this is comfort for the past. Everything leading up to this point in your life is probably interwoven with times of sorrow and regret maybe even shame, maybe carry some of that with you today. I want this to be a source of great comfort for you, regardless of what you've been through in the past. That when we say that all things are working together for good, we really do mean it. And that God uses everything in your life because he foreknew it would occur, that he predestined every aspect of it by his divine decree that he is through even your sin conforming you into the likeness of his son, both spiritually and eventually physically, that all of it is working together for your own glory as well as his. And in that you can rejoice and take great, great comfort. You need not bear any shame and carry any burden with you. If you are this morning, cast it off. If you are in Christ, if you are this morning and you know you're not in Christ, and make today the day when you cast it off, because he expects nothing of you except to acknowledge your need of him. Now, number two, freedom for the present. Freedom for the present. What I mean by that is, I mean, you are freed from chasing whatever little temporal new earth you're trying to create here. And in fact, several of you know what it's like to attempt to do that only to be disappointed only to be moved on, as it were, from place to place before you're ever really able to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. And some of you feel like you're almost nomadic, that nothing ever seems to last, nothing ever seems to grow root, nothing ever seems to bear fruit. And, and, and I thought about this as I was reading a letter by Samuel Rutherford that was written to a member in his congregation. Interestingly enough, upon hearing word that she had lost a child. The letter begins to the elect and noble lady, my lady Kenmore, on occasion of the death of her infant daughter. This is a letter he notes that tribulation is often the portion of God's people and intended to wean them from the world. And he provides this really beautiful illustration halfway through his letter. And he actually ties it back to the text of Romans 8, 29. And he says this to her, and I'll I'll, I'll modernize the English a little bit. He says to her, Build your nest upon no tree here. For you see that God has sold the forest to death. And every tree whereupon we would rest is already to be cut down. To the end that we may fly and mount up and build upon the rock and dwell in the holes of the rock. He's saying how often it is that we try to build our nests in the trees that God has already sold to death. And right as we're getting comfortable, he comes along and he shakes that tree and he startles us out of it. And we flit away and we land on another tree and he shakes that one too and another tree and he shakes that one too until we find our rest in no tree that he has already set aside for death, but in he himself on the rock in the rock. Rutherford says to this lady, fear not whatever is taken from you in this world, for only that which is secure in Christ is what you will have forever. Finally, joy for the future. If there is nothing that will give you joy for the future, then I I don't know what will. You've already been told that you're adopted. Uh, The papers are drafted up. You are already in the will. You will already receive the inheritance. How much has been said over the last two weeks about how the assets of the Gates family is going to be distributed upon the completion of a divorce? You want to bring out the worst in people? Have them argue and fight over the remaining assets of a wealthy person. Fighting over every jot and tittle of in the will. What belongs to me? How much do I get? I want my fair share. You want to see people at their worst? Look at them fighting over the money left to them by their parents. By the way, parents, you don't have to leave anything if you don't want. Spend it all now. Watch what God does with it. Paul says, you know what? You don't have to worry about that. You, have to worry about, you, don't, you don't have to worry about having some big argument when, when we get to glory about who gets what. You know? Oh, I wanted that room. I wanted that chariot. I wanted that whatever. No. There's going to be none of that going on. Because his riches are infinite. The inheritance is infinite. And everyone will receive everything as if it was Christ himself receiving it. I oh, will be loosened from overly anxious attention to things of this world you know there are more important things than owning a house in southern california i realize it seems impossible right now (laughs) in fact there are greater things than much of what we tend to pour our time and attention and anxiety into trying to achieve and hold on to here believe me i know it because i counsel many of you through this i know it's hard but just remember that that whatever scraping we do here to make ends meet will be gone forever when we enjoy glory with him and forever is a really, really long time. And whatever we had to do here to survive and persevere will be long forgotten. The moment we see what awaits us on the other side of this short life, often vain and futile as it is, evaporating like steam, only to be reconstituted in the new image character of Christ to enjoy him in his glory forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful truth, for the doctrine of adoption, for the truth of our being foreknown by you and predestined to be conformed into the image of your son, both spiritually and physically, to know the joy of a resurrected body in a new heavens and a new earth with an infinite inheritance to enjoy forever and ever? Shake us from this continual obsession with gaining now what you never promised we'd have. And let us find our ultimate fulfillment In everything that you have chosen to give us, knowing that you only give us what's good for us. And if we go chasing after it in some other location, we're not going to get it there either if it's not good for us. If we don't have it now, we're not going to have it later. This life is not what we should be pouring our attention into making as pleasant as possible. Instead, Father, help us to use the resources you've given us so that by your grace, we might use them for eternal purposes and watch you multiply them beyond our wildest dreams. I thank you, Father, for those in our body who have adopted that philosophy. They're generous. They love to see what you do in missions around the world. See the way that you take just a mustard seed of faith and a mustard seed of finances, and you turn it into something beyond anything we could ask or think. We have needs, and you know that. We need shelter. We need clothing. We need just the stuff of life, and we live in a complex world. You've given us so many things to rejoice in, so many extra comforts and blessings. We, We know no persecution here. We know no trial. And yet, Father, help us not to cling to that as some indication that you love us more than others. When we consider what's going on with our brothers and sisters in countries like North Korea, China, Iran. Remind us, Lord, that what you do for us in this earth is only for our good, and that all of us together one day will sing your praises. Equally endowed with all of your righteousness, basking in your glory, sharing your riches, and enjoying your fellowship forever. Make that our hope and joy.